Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Payroll Question Time. Today's discussion points, we're going to talk about salary sacrifice, what it is and what it isn't, the future of pensions, the end of furlough, written statements of employment particulars, what, who, why and when, planning ahead, right to work, new guidance, and of course, recruiting and retaining payroll talent, as well as a couple of hot topics if we get time at the end as well. We're going to delve into our first subject today, which is salary sacrifice, what it is and what it is. I'm going to come to you, Samantha. What salary sacrifice is, is where an employee agrees contractually uh, with their employer to give up or sacrifice. And I think there is a clue there in the, in the name, a higher cash salary in return for a non-cash benefit. So essentially, they're giving up salary, they're giving up pay, they're giving up a contractual right to it. And I can't emphasize that enough because this is, and anyone who works in payroll will know, the debates and discussions you have with someone who's going off on maternity leave, when you tell them what the maternity pay value is going to be, they'll say, well, you've calculated using the wrong figure there. What about the, the salary sacrifice amount? Uh, no, contractually given up, no right to. It's not a, a deduction. It's not a purchase. It is a reduction to pay in return for a non-cash benefit. And over recent years, we've seen quite a lot of consultation from government who were trying to address um, the reach that salary sacrifice was increasingly having as employers and industry were seeing finding ways of using salary sacrifice more to offer savings, particularly on employer and employee national insurance contributions. And the end result of those that consultation meant there was a very small number of items that can now be sacrificed uh, or for reasons to, that can be sacrificed. For example, employer pension or pension advice. For example, cycles or cycle safety equipment. For example, employer childcare. Um, and at the very beginning, we had grandfathering arrangements that included low value company cars, but they have now been exhausted and fully fulfilled. And that's the salary sacrifice in a nutshell, I think. Um, there's a lot of impacts as a result of salary sacrifice, though. It's a super summary. But let me come to you then, Simon. Does furlough impact it? We're going to talk about the end of furlough in a while, but does furlough impact salary sacrifice? Uh, it it doesn't uh, impact the benefit right, but it does impact in relation to how an employer funds that benefit. Because as Sam's indicated, it is actually a non-cash benefit provision. So the employer is actually giving it away for free on the basis the employer employee has taken a pay cut contractually. But furlough, the difficulty with furlough is it is post-sacrifice. So uh, you can't sacrifice furlough pay because it's already judged on pay that's been sacrificed. So if you take the money off the individual again, you're actually in breach of the coronavirus job retention scheme and the government could come and ask for all the money back. So you have to pay 100% the grant money received from the government. Now, top ups, you could potentially reduce and there are implications for pensions. Uh, which I think we've covered before, but we'll repeat again here, that, of course, if you've got a smart pension or a salary sacrifice pension, 
you can't actually reduce the furlough, but the employer still has to continue to pay the contribution amounts that were agreed in the contractual arrangements. Um, there are other aspects that go along with that because we see that, uh, sorry, throwing in another topic, some people think that holiday rights stop when you're furloughed. They don't because you're still employed. So you're still entitled to the benefits associated with employment as if you're working, even though you're not. Fabulous. We've got Opfer Rules uh, as a bullet point listed here. So yeah. who would like to talk me through a little bit more about how that impacts on salary sacrifice? I think yeah. lots of people operate schemes of benefits. And if you said to them, do you operate a salary sacrifice? They'd say, no, we don't have one of those. Whereas in reality, they do. So anything that's pre-tax and pre-NI is actually a salary sacrifice. But the government have another term for it. So the law that was passed back in, I'm, I'm guessing from memory here, and 2016-17 uh, uh, that came in is called optional remuneration arrangements. So where you swap anything within your earnings base to be a benefit instead and get tax or national insurance relief comes under the OPERA rules. And what the OPERA rules mean is that except for benefits which are exempt, which is childcare, pensions, cycle, the amount that's taxable is the amount you gave up. All right. So there was an element of in the old days, salary sacrifice, if you gave up an amount, it might be taxable, but it might have been taxable on 20% of the asset price and not the amount that you gave up. Under the OPERA rules, the amount you gave up is the amount that's taxable or the benefit is higher. So it's just understanding it. Sometimes we often see people talk about, well, they can't buy their childcare and this and that and the other. And there's an argument of they're not buying anything because you don't get tax and NI relief on things you buy. The only things that you can buy that have tax and NI relief are potentially, well, actually share plans, approved share plans, share incentive plans which are pre-tax and NI deductions. And the only real deduction that is pre-tax is pension employee contributions and uh, give as you earn, uh, so uh, charitable giving. Nothing else is. So if you're buying a bike, you're not buying a bike. You're being lent one. You're actually taking a pay cut. So it's an opera. And whoever said payroll was simple? But away from payroll for a moment, we're going to look at the future of pensions. And of course, we've got our resident pensions expert, Andy Nichols, with us, who's going to help us understand the future of pensions in a little bit more detail. So, Andy, as I pass the conversation over to you, can you tell our audience a bit about the next phase of auto enrolment and any anticipated changes to the pensions dashboard? Indeed, yeah, there's um, lots going on, actually, which have do have an impact. So there's probably a few other things I'll touch on. Um, but in terms of automatic enrolment, there was a review carried out in 2017 um, and they suggested the following. So as a consultation, et cetera, and the feedback from all of that was two main changes will be happening. It's just a case of when. Um, and the most likely when is around about 2024, 2025. So the mid of this decade. Um, but legislation will have to be passed, so it'll be, there won't be all of a sudden happening. It'll be quite clear what's happening and the timeframes, et cetera, will be obvious. But the changes are reducing the automatic enrolment trigger age from 22 down to 18. So 18-year-olds will be automatically enrolled if they earn enough, 
as well. And, and the other change is to reduce the lower limit down to zero, which is probably going to be a removal of the limit. Um, so that those individuals who would have been an entitled worker, as it is called in automatic enrollment, i.e. those who could join a scheme, but the employer didn't have to pay into the scheme, that category will go. And everyone who joins the scheme, either because they've been automatically enrolled or they've opted in, will have a right to an employer contribution from pound one upwards. Like even if we're still going on back in in, in 2024 onwards, then um, we'll be able to tell you that. Um, okay. So, yes, definite changes coming up, but we don't know exactly when. Controlled by DDBP. The next thing, of course, is the pensions dashboard, which you're probably thinking, why does that impact payroll? Because simply payroll the employer and the payroll system, along with HR systems, are going to be the source information for pension system data. And that data will be used by a pensions dashboard to show individuals all the various pensions they've got available to them, all the ones that they've probably forgotten all about. And they can just log into a pensions dashboard. Probably the, the target is 2023 for that to be available. Wait and see exactly the time frame for that. And then you could, as an individual, log in, look at all your pensions, and then you could think, actually, is that going to be enough to retire on? Do I need to save more, etc.? There's a few lots of development going on, mainly impacting the pensions industry. So, like a data standard, so all pension schemes know what sort of data has to be provided to the pensions dashboard. How do you make sure that people are getting the right data? So they're, you know, you're protecting individuals, GDPR, and all those sort of things. There's a current working party being set up by the Pensions Administration Standards Association, the PLSA, ABI, Insurance of, of British Insurers, Association of British Insurers, all various parties involved in the industry to try and link together the how the data is requested. So, you know, to make sure there's a standard across all of the world of pensions. And if that had been done for automatic enrollment, automatic enrollment could have been easier. So I'm really pleased that pensions dashboard are going to do things really effectively. Um, you just got to wait and see. There's going to be test companies, seven, te- seven companies have agreed uh, that they'll start providing data early 2022 to test the t- dashboard out. So all of 2022 will be getting things in place ready for 2023. So watch this space because you may get as an employer, when they start to do these tests to see going live in effect, that's when the data gaps will be identified. And that's when, as employers, you may end up with, can you tell us what happened back in 2000 and ooh, maybe even late earlier than that? So be aware there may be um, requests for information. That's probably the dashboard side of things. And then um, you may have noticed that um, in the press, this is a personal thing, really. This is could impact, will impact you. The, the normal minimum pension age at the moment is 55, but that's going to be, it's been proposed to increase that to 57 from April 2028, which means that the earliest you can access your pension to take money out of your pension will be going from 55 to 57, unless there's other circumstances, ill health normally will allow you to have that earlier. But there's a lot of thought, well, actually, I wouldn't, I, I want to keep it at 55. So there's a lot of debate going back and forth about how that's going to work actually in practice. And maybe the scheme rules, if you're in a scheme that says 55, you can get it at 55. If your scheme says 57 later on, you're going to have to wait until 57. So lots of interesting things, but it's really a personal thing. It shouldn't really impact payroll. Um, 
unless you're going to end up with your employer changing the scheme to the scheme is a 55, not a 57 age scheme. The other thing that I think which I'd like to mention is Nestor looking at an opting out trial for, pension, for savings, which is not pension, but Nestor, a large pension provider. But the government are very keen for financial well-being for amongst people. So Nestor being asked to trial this opting out process, which is you can you'll be automatically enrolled into a savings scheme and you will need to opt out. So that's going to be trialed by Nest soon. So you might be one of the employers who are part of that trial, maybe. I had a work in practice and a long term future that I don't know, but the government are really serious about looking after people's financial welfare. So that's a thing to consider. How it might impact pay. And of course, tax relief on pensions is a big topic. And the government, HMT, all the money spent on furlough, will they recover some of that through changing the tax relief methods through payroll? Well, there's no point in debating that here. We just wait and see what the government decides. <laughs> That's my thought. Lots going on. Watch this space. Interestingly, we had a bit of a, a lively discussion about the financial wellness piece in our pay on demand section, which we did a PQT a couple of episodes ago. So you can have a look back at that. But uh, one thing, whether you're a fan or not a fan of pay on demand, that we, we can be sure based on the information that's been released is that uh, financial wellness has a huge impact on mental health. So it'd be interesting to see how that trial um, coming away actually has a, a positive impact, which would be, be interesting to see going forward. Well, we've got a huge subject to open up. Um, we're going to you know, use that buzzword of, uh, of furlough again. Uh, now, I'm sure I'm not alone as well in celebrating the end of furlough. I know it's going to impact many employees, but at least from a payroll processing and administration perspective, we know it's been quite challenging. So as we do come near the end of the scheme, it's undoubtedly going to leave us all with a lot of questions, which is why we've got an expert panel here on hand to help you with all of those today. Simon, over to you. Tell us what's happening and what do we need to be aware of and plan for over the coming months? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nick. So uh, we've got another significant date soon upon us. So the 1st of July saw the, the requirement for the employer to fund an eighth, fund an eighth of the furlough payments paid to individuals. So that was the first, uh, a little bit, we had this a year ago, but that was the first point where um, the government weren't covering the full 80%, uh, the employer having to cover the, ta the national insurance, sorry, contributions, theirs and pensions, but, uh, but they could get all of the payback. July, that dropped to a 10% contribution from the employer, 10 percentage points, so that's an eighth that the employer had to pay. Of course, on Sunday, that goes to 20%, so a quarter. So employers will now be having to fund a quarter of the furlough payment, plus pay all of the employer's uh, secondary national insurance contribution and pension contributions. So there is that change. Uh, I know it's been problematical operating calendar months for people, but the claims are still beginning of month to end of month, and that doesn't conveniently fall with weeks, two weekly, four weekly cycles. So you have to split claims and work them out. And what do you do? Because data's late and it hasn't been notified in time. We still have the 14th, 15th or 16th basing whether there's a weekend claim point. Bit of a change. It's starting to get more expensive and come September, it ends altogether. So the end of September, no more furlough. Everyone's back to normal. I guess the government would point to the fact that uh, having been at the high of 
14 million, is it, that were on furlough. We're now down at 2 million left. So uh, the nation should be returning. And of course, you've got the, uh, the world organisations indicating that Britain's going to boom. The reality on the floor may be different and uh, some mm. may still be struggling. And equally, uh, at some point, some of these debts and loans that we've had to get through this period of time will need to be repaid. So is that a reality and what will happen or are we heading for redundancies? I think that's some phenomenal advice there. And obviously, PQT here, we're here to try and help everyone listening to this, try and protect you all as best we can. So let's talk a little bit about the audit trail and compliance work that we need to be wary of. Samantha, maybe I can come to you to talk to you about, you know, what, what people, how long do we need to keep these records for? Is there an audit, you know, what's the best process for, for our audit trail and compliance process? Absolutely. I mean, let's just spend a couple of minutes thinking about um, what what actually can put an employer into hot water. What do we talk about when we're looking at furlough fraud? Um, and we can use the F word or errors because, you know, it, it isn't always intentional. Uh, it might be that you have uh, not told an employee that they're on furlough. The first they know about it is when they receive a payslip. You're not paying an employee all of the, the furlough pay that you're claiming for for their hours that aren't worked you are keeping fraudulent records um, is an obvious one and how does hmrc know about this well they have a, a a fraud hotline and they have this for all taxes not just for uh, cjrs and of course they have rti records so there's an element of checking that goes on when a, a, a submission is made that looks at a particular key period and can reject a claim where it um, has reason to or a hmrc systems have reason to think that that's an invalid claim. So in terms of compliance work, so what happens uh, where an employer has completely failed to be compliant with their CJRS claims? Well, the repayment uh, mechanism is just along the, the same lines as it would be for income tax. And of course, the penalties and interest charges um, sit uh, in the same space as well. So whatever would have happened for income tax, which is you repay 100% of what would be due, um, would um, be the same again. I'm frantically trying to remember how we how long we keep the records for. Um, I remember this, the five years and the six years rules in terms of written agreement between the employer and the employee. And then I think it's a minimum of five years, is it, Simon? I'm looking at Simon Liu here for uh, CJRS records. Obviously, I would say keep it as long as you possibly can within yeah. your data protection policies, of course. Super. And bringing it back to uh, what has happened to the bonus. Had some you told informal us to kill us. information. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, dead. I, yeah. Do you think anyone's due a bonus this year? Only payroll professionals, is that right? Absolutely. No one else is due a bonus. I think I'd be very surprised if anybody uh, saw the job retention bonus being resurrected at all. I think uh, I'd suggest it ended when furlough was extended. I think, and I would agree, the, from my perspective, I suppose, and as a managed payroll service, I suppose the disappointment is so many businesses towards the end of last year had focused on the bonus and they were looking for it in February and in March. And then at short notice, that was um, removed. You know, so there are businesses out there. I don't know who maybe they're still included in their financial accounts as a possibility of receiving because 
last September in particular, there were businesses making decisions of do we continue or, you know, or do we um, cease trading? And some of them had kept going because the incentive was real for them, you know, so there hasn't been anything that I'm as Simon said, that I'm aware of, but I think it's something that maybe you aspire to. You hope that it's still there, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll watch this space and see if it returns. I like all guidance. It'll probably come out last minute or two weeks late. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't want it out yet. Who, why and when? And we have our expert from DWF, John Peeble, who's going to tell us all about the changes that may impact our audience from April 2020. John. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Well, of course, I mean, it's, it's not new that uh, you've got to give an employee uh, a written statement of particulars uh, of employment. Um, that's been around for a long time. And uh, written statements of particulars employment is quite a mouthful. Uh, we employment lawyers call it a section one statement. It's section one of the Employment Rights Act that uh, contains those obligations. So I'll, I'll use that just to, to save my mouth from working too hard. Mm-hmm. So there's always been that obligation, but there have been some changes uh, that have been brought in since the 6th of April. Um, one of the more significant ones is, is that the obligation is now extended from employees and also covers workers uh, as well. And uh, for those who, who uh, may not have, have kept up with the Uber case in the Supreme Court and other types of litigation, in employment there are really three categories uh, that you can be. Um, you can be self-employed, um, you can be employed, or you can fall somewhere in the middle uh, and be a worker. And if you're a worker, you get some employment rights, but not all of them. Uh, and I have to say, sometimes it's rather difficult to define where the line comes between whether someone's self-employed uh, or a worker. So there's an obligation to provide um, this Section 1 statement to a worker. Uh, but the starting point is trying to work out whether someone is a worker or, or not a worker, which I have to say isn't the easiest task. So if you're using casual workers on an ad hoc basis, yes, they would clearly fall within that. Um, there's some scope for directly engaged contractors to fall within that uh, as well. But as I say, it's, it's not the easiest line to, to sometimes draw. If you're using agency workers, uh, the obligation isn't on you to provide them with the Section 1 statement, that would be the obligation of the employment agency who's supplying them to you. But um, there have been uh, some changes that have come in on 6 April um, that are in addition to it being extended um, to workers. Um, It doesn't apply, the, the new rules, necessarily to those who started work before the 6th of April 2020. And for employees who started work before the 6th of April 2020, they're entitled to a Section 1 statement if they ask for it, but they don't get one as of right. So there isn't a need to run around and reissue uh, your written statement for particulars of employment. However, if there is a change to the terms of employment, then you've got to provide an updated statement, and that will apply to those who started after the 6th of April and those who started before the 6th of April. So you've got to update uh, in those uh, circumstances. Now, uh, you may be quite familiar with what needs to go in a Section 1 statement. There's a a very long list of things that I'm not going to go through. Um, You know, the names of 
uh, employer and employee, details relating to pay, holiday, uh, and all that type of stuff. But there have been some additions that were introduced uh, on the 6th of April that you may not have picked up. Uh, and the first one is the days of the week when the worker is uh, or employee is required to work. Uh, and if the working hours are variable, how any variation would be determined. So that's a, a new addition. Um, the second is that you've obviously got to set out the holiday entitlement and always have done. But you, in the new iteration after the 6th of April, you've also got to cover off any other paid leave to which someone may be entitled. Uh, and of course, that may be adoption, maternity, all of those sort of things. So you need to cover that off. Uh, a new addition, number three, is you've got to deal any other benefits uh, that are going to be provided. They've got to be included. Fourth new addition relates to probationary period. So you've got to cover that off in the Section 1 statement. Uh, and also, if there's no probationary period, you've got to set that out uh, as well. And you've also got to cover off any training entitlement which was provided by you, um, including any mandatory training and any training which the employee has to pay for. And also as well, this is a point of note, although this uh, has always applied, these things apply to non-contractual benefits as well as contractual benefits. So, for example, if you've got a non-contractual bonus, um, that should be referenced within your Section 1 statement. Now, most of these things have to be included in one document, there are some exceptions that you can provide some details within the following two months. And that really relates to uh, collective agreements, training entitlement and pensions. But as I say, there are some changes. Um, provisions still apply um, that if you change the terms, you've got to give a revised statement. Being a, being a lawyer, uh, I, I couldn't end on what happens when it all goes wrong. Um, I would say from a, a practical point of view, the liabilities for, for not quite getting the, the Section 1 statement right or, or not providing it in itself are, are fairly limited. But they generally piggyback on other claims, which give a, a right to compensation of up to two weeks or four weeks pay. So we, we don't really see very much, to be quite frank, in the way of freestanding applications to, to get the Section 1 statement amended or corrected. Um, it's always part of a kitchen sink approach when someone's bringing a whole host of claims. Uh, and when they're looking at the book of the claims they could bring, they see that at the bottom and tack it on at the end. But it, but it is um, important to get that right. There's a note on there about uh, flexible working. And there has been a, a private member's bill that came out in July. It's a, a 10 minute bill. And currently for flexible working, the onus is on the individual to make an application for flexible working. Uh, and I have to say, from a, a sort of tribunal type perspective, all the tribunal can really look at is whether the process has been followed. What it really doesn't engage with um, is the merits of the decision whether or not to allow flexible working. And the private members bill wants to flip that round to a degree um, so that it sets out within the contract options for flexible working, potentially gives a right to flexible working. Um, but I don't think it stretches as far as giving a, a, a right to work from home. Uh, although, frankly, um, given where we are, the genie's out the bottle on that anyway. And quite a lot of we're, what we're dealing with in a, in a practical and, and legal sense is, is quite how you deal 
uh, with those situations where people don't want to come back into work and how you're going to manage it operationally. Um, so that can be something of a, a challenge uh, which we're all facing at the moment. Sure. Now we're going to jump into the next section here, which is uh, payrolling benefits. We talked a lot about this in the last uh, last PQT. And for those that joined us last month, you'll know there were a lot of questions that we uh, we visited as well. We felt it was worth another visit. So I'm going to go to Samantha, Simon and Lou, who are going to help us all understand how we can plan ahead effectively. Um, and of course, for those that didn't join us last time, you can go back to the Payroll Podcast or you can indeed go to SD Works and find the recordings or listen to the recordings if you want to find out what those questions were and how we handled them. But let's start with you, Simon. What can payroll managers start to do now to prepare for payroll benefits next year? It's important. Uh, quite often we'll get a number of customers uh, or uh, employers come to us around April and say, we're just coming. Coming up to the April payroll deadlines, uh, we'd like to payroll. And there's an element of, uh, well, it's April the 12th. And they'll say, yes, our cutoffs, you know, we pay on the end of the month. Our cutoffs the 18th or the 20th. Can we payroll this month? And there's an element of, you had to register. And you had to register before the 5th of April. So there's an element of, you have to plan ahead. You can't just then suddenly decide. And also there are implications because the other aspect of payrolling is, although it looks very similar to P11D, although some of the calculations are fairly similar to P11D, they're not actually the same. So the need for data, the need for application is different, close, but different. So a number of times we've had people come to us in mid-April and say, we'd like to do that payroll thing now. Can we go ahead? And the answer is, you're too late. You've missed registration. And then we find they come to us the following April and say, you know, we couldn't do it last year. We'd like to do it this year. And there's an element of, well, the 6th of April has passed again. You're too late. You have to register. And there's an element of, you could register tomorrow for 6th of April 2022, why not do it? Because if you don't go ahead, you don't have to, but you do need to register ahead. Hopefully that helps a bit, but there's an element of plan and it is not the same thing as P11D. Close, but not the same. I think we can coin the five Ps there, Simon. Mr. Parson says that preparation prevents poor performance, right? The five Ps. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Samantha, let me move it over to yourself. Let me talk a little bit more about the conversation we had last month, if you can take it a little bit more forward in terms of other things that we need to consider. Uh, absolutely. I mean, just, just to sort of finish off really on the planning ahead, I think the planning ahead needed will do very much depend on who you are and what you what your role is within the payroll industry. So Simon is talking there not only from a software developer perspective, but also a bureau. Um, so providing a payroll service to clients. So if you are providing uh, a service to clients, so it's the reason they're using our services, and of course, I'm here. I'm uh, Armstrong Watson, that also has um, a thriving payroll service, is because the employer doesn't really want to get their head around payroll, and they don't want to get their head around the intricacies. They may also be using colleagues of yours within a different team. So the tax team may currently be doing the P11Ds. So there might be an issue there about whether or not there's a conflict if you want to 
promote uh, payrolling to your clients because you think it's the bee's knees and it's the best thing since sliced bread and whatever. We know from personal experience that employers quite often don't like to pay a lot of money for the payroll services that they get. They don't value it in the same way as they possibly would do in the tax space. So there's a lot of different issues. So now is the time not only for employers to be thinking about registering next year and the implications of what that's going to do for them, but also for um, the providers of payroll services to be thinking, actually, what do we, what conversations do we need to be having with colleagues to actually promote this within our business or actually quell it? We don't want it. <laughs> so, you know, and what are we going to charge for it? You know, let's let's talk costs you know it's, it's an important thing if we don't value what we do within payroll then our clients most assuredly and our colleagues most assuredly aren't going to but one of the discussions we were having last month sorry I kind of went right around the uh, the, the, the table there to get to uh, what we were discussing last time was actually the discussion between the registration for HMRC's payrolling of benefits in kind PBIX that's a nice uh, a nice little acronym there um, and informally payrolling. Now, informally payrolling requires you still to submit a P11D at the end of the year, even though you've processed um, the amounts through the payroll and collected tax in real time. Um, but you would identify on the P11D that you have payrolled that benefit in kind. Now, uh, what we were told very last minute uh, back uh, in the employer bulletin February time, February, February thank you, Simon, um, was the fact that actually informal payrolling, well, if you're doing it, stop it. And there was no further kind of notice on that or discussion. Now, I have to say, I signed up for an HMRC webinar rather recently on the subject of expenses and benefits in kind and payrolling, simply because I wanted to sort of see if they kind of expanded on that. There seems to be a suggestion that informal payrolling would still could still be possible. And one of the reasons you might informally payroll still is because you payroll your the, the value of your loans, the beneficial loans that you provide to your employees and uh, beneficial loans together with living accommodation aren't currently included within the PBIC registration service. So there might be some very valid reasons why an employer can't suddenly sign up to PBICs because they provide beneficial loans and there is no facility or functionality to be able to process those in real time using the formal service. So, you know, these are, these are sort of, again, further considerations that need to be had. What are you intending to payroll or what do you currently payroll? And is there a functionality for you to be able to register with HMRC to continue doing it. Super, fantastic. If I come over to yourself, Lou, again, someone else who's very much involved in delivering payroll services for, for a number of clients, you'll see some of the uh, the questions, things that come through. How does it impact PSA Class 1B calculations and, and what else are you finding in terms of your, your clients, I guess, challenges or questions? I think to talk about P11Ds first, I think a lot of um, clients struggle with P11Ds and also the informal payrolling benefits. That really did throw a lot of us into disarray initially on that um, February bulletin because it was uh, from a managed payroll bureau. You're having to communicate that to clients. And at EY Absolute, we have global clients across the world. So it's trying to put it in a way that's understandable and also to um, make it 
known that the 5th of April deadline, there is no moving of the deadline. If you're not, you know, ahead of the game, that then you'll have to wait for the following year. And I think it's also what Sam there has also mentioned is whenever you're registering, you have to determine what your benefits are. And at that stage, so you have to be aware. And sometimes um, businesses don't fully understand the benefits that they have and what has to be registered on a P11D or what can be informally payrolled. And that's about getting tax advice. And that's very much where my business would come to. Now, PSAs and also something that um, sometimes is forgotten about is the ERS. Whenever a business would have the stocks and shares going through the payroll, you also have to make sure that you have your your filings um, completed for that or else HMRC will pick up um, that maybe that you have failed. They've noticed that in the payroll there is stocks and shares going through but you haven't filed your ERS and therefore they do come and they do ask questions and there can be penalties for that as well. So it's about looking at your whole payroll, looking at what HMRC in particular are most interested in and very much if you think we're just through a pandemic. We're still in it, obviously. HMRC are wanting to see where they can raise funds because of the amount of money the government has been spending. And that comes back and links into the fraud and being making sure that you have your records. I know I keep saying this. I can't state it enough. You need to have your records. You need to have an understanding of what you're doing and processing through the payroll because you will be questioned. Um, and something that's very much on social media um, whenever you're looking at the Facebook groups and people's grasp of payroll, um, sometimes you do be concerned over what's being processed, what's being understood. You know, even if you look at what John's talked about in relation to contracts, the importance of a contract, the importance of an employee understanding what they're signing up for. And I think that's something that we all have to be very mindful of. Uh, Simon, wonder if there's anything else you'd like to add to the uh, payrolling benefits conversation, or shall I jump straight into some of the audience uh, inquiries? No, that's good. I'd, I'd go for it. We promote uh, payrolling. It's great when it works. Some things it doesn't work very well for. Um, so just be wary of that, because remember, to payroll successfully, you need accurate data up front. It's not something you can do in arrears, because you have to do it within the tax year applicable. Super. So let me jump into the first question then, which actually relates to payrolling benefits. It comes in from Anna Opasinka. So she said, could you let me know what happens when benefits are payrolled, but the employee enters the unpaid maternity leave period? Can you exclude the employee from payrolling mid-tax year? Uh, Samantha, maybe I can come to you with that. Yes, my my understanding is yes, you can you can you can do that. Um, I mean, when you first register um, with uh, ben uh, payrolling of benefits in kind, you are firstly presented with an opportunity to identify which benefits in kind you want to payroll, uh, which values you want to payroll. Uh, the most commonly payrolled are medical, health insurance, and company cars and fuel, and they are consistently the most common. But equally, you can identify employees that you want to exclude. And so you can notify HMRC of that. Um, I think where somebody stops mid-year, what will happen then is HMRC will pick up any deficiency in tax in the traditional manner. Simon or Lou might want to add more to, to what I've just said there. 
so those that go on maternity, you can exclude. I think the online actually lets you stipulate which individuals yeah. and you uh, report uh, the, the residual benefit that hasn't been payrolled on a P11D. Yeah. Super. So I've got another question here. It goes back to our salary sacrifice topic a little bit earlier on. It says there are a lot of, it comes from Emma Braun, and it says there are a lot of places pushing salary sacrifice for electric cars payments. Are HMRC talking about adding this to their exemption list? Initially, they benefited from the grandfathering, but I'm not aware, because there is a, there is a potential taxable element, I'm not aware that they're uh, excluded now. Yeah, sure. I think they are. And that was the, can remember at the beginning, I couldn't remember the fourth item on the list of oh, excluded okay. item. And it's uh, vehicles under 75 uh, grams of CO2 emissions, for which the electric vehicles would potentially come under. Some of those, you've got to be careful with that uh, classification because it can drop over time. Uh, so electric vehicles, I think, are exempted still, and you can operate salary sacrifice arrangements on them because they meet the uh, 75 gram under regulated requirements. That's why we also had the changes to the RTI FPS for payrolling to add in the electric car and uh, mileage ranges and things like that. So there are options. Super. And we've got a really interesting observational question here coming in from Sheila, which says, are cycled work schemes at risk given the move to hybrid or stroke agile working, especially if the majority of your staff end up being home workers? Presently, the answer is no, I don't think they are at risk. Um, the law is worded in a certain way, but the activity of HMRC is something slightly different. I'm allowed to say this. Sam will tell me off in a minute and maybe Lou. But uh, the reality is the bike schemes are for riding to work, cycle to work schemes. Uh, however, the HMRC indicate that they will not audit whether individuals have ridden the bike to work or not. Am I speaking out of turn there, Sam, do you think? Well, you know, I think I think ultimately HMRC are going to be looking to collect as much tax as, uh, as they can. So, you know, things could always change in the future. Uh, and I think it's ensuring that you do have, I mean, it's been a while since that was first discussed, but I, I seem to vaguely recall discussions about the processes you would need in place to be able to monitor the use of the bicycles at the workplace or, you know, going into the workplace and, and the like. So. Uh, so, and I would never discount HMRC checking anything <laughs> if there's a potential tax bill in it. So. Before we get there, we're going to go to our resident expert on right to work, John Dorney from DWF, to talk to us about some of the new guidance, which was released at the beginning of July. Uh, John, tell us about some of the changes and why they're important, uh, because I think, as you say, or as I said, rather, some of this guidance has come out a little bit late. They are, yeah, thanks, Nick. Yeah, they are important. I think the starting point is to say that in this country, it is uh, illegal to employ somebody who doesn't have the lawful right to work in the UK. And if you do so, then you can you are subject to a, a civil penalty, and that's £20,000 uh, per employee if you unknowingly um, employ somebody who's not got the lawful right to work. And it's unlimited fines and directly goes to prison for five years. If you knowingly employ somebody who hasn't got the right to work. So it's quite serious stuff. But employers can avoid liability to this by getting something called the statutory excuse. And that is quite simply is you carry out uh, checks on an employee before they commence employment with you, following a home office guidance and satisfy yourself that they've got the right to work in the UK. If you do this and you make a record of having carried out the check, 
If it subsequently turns out that the employee is working lawfully, then you're bulletproof, you're fine. The reason I say that is there's been a massive change um, on the 1st of July to the right to work checks as published by the Home Office. And the reason the change has come on the 1st of July is because of Brexit. Um, as you might be aware, um, we used to have a thing called free movement of workers, uh, where, where European nationals could come to the UK, didn't work in the UK, and, and that was actually fine. We left the union, uh, it was a transitional period, and basically our European friends uh, come to the UK until 31st of December 2020 and exercise pretty much treaty rights and then current living work in the UK. To work out which Europeans have these rights pre um, Year's Eve 2020 and which Europeans come in after, uh, uh, from 1st of 2021, we subject it to normal like visa control, same as wages Australians, Americans, Indians would. Um, we set up this thing called the um, European Settlement Scheme. And under that, resident migrants in the uh, European migrants in the UK, UK has to mandatorily register the scheme and that has to be done by the 30th of June. So 30th of June has, has arrived and in theory, everyone, all our European friends should have now registered. And that's why the change has come about. Until the 30th of June, there's a transition period whereby the old right to work checks applied. So, for example, if I say a Spanish national had joined your employment people, you could check his or her passports at the date, and that would have been fine for purposes of the um, status of excuse, although the passport only now demonstrates nationality rather than residency, which is the, the criterion. I've been asked numerous times over the past few months what's going to happen after the transition period, and I've been saying we're waiting on guidance. The guidance is coming. It'll be here shortly. The guidance actually landed on or around about the 1st of July. Um, and so right at the very 11th hour, uh, people are concerned about you know, what happens now. There are various changes in the guidance. The main one is with regard to European nationals living and working in the UK and those who were here in time at the 7th, 31st of December and those who may have come after that day so we need a different permission. And the way uh, you work out whether a European national can work for us is you do, um, although in the main past it's been um, documentary check, checking hard copy documents, it's now an online check. So the way it works is the European who will have obviously uh, registered under the scheme because it's mandatory and why wouldn't they have, um, they can go onto their own immigration status link with the Home Office, they can get a share code and they can then give that to their prospective employer, or in fact they can actually get the Home Office to email that code to their prospective employer. The employer sort of tippy taps the code into, um, into the system along the migrants' eggs birth. And then when carrying out the right to work check in the presence of the migrants, that might be face to face or by video screen, um, a photograph will pop up of the Home Office record saying what, whether the migrant can and cannot work in the UK and what, you know, and for how long will it be. It's, it's a one off check or might it be repeated. And, and it's, it's as simple as that. You just need to do the check online and uh, make sure you do it in accordance with the Home Office guidance. For example, you must do it through the employer's uh, check portal. You don't look at the um, migrant's own status document because that won't give you the assistance you're looking at. The other questions I've had, and it's popped again and again, is do we need to do retrospective checks on all the Europeans we've got working for at the moment? And the answer is no. If you did the check up to and including the 30th of June, anybody who joined us uh, as, an employee, as an employee or 30th of June, then the previous check would apply. So again, back to my example of, of a Spanish migrant joining us uh, in April or May this year, who shows a passport, that's absolutely fine. We don't need to check their permissions again. And Home Office Guidance actually says, if you were to actually say, well, actually, we might want to make sure everything's in good order, so we're going to check you know, all our European uh, colleagues and do uh, respective checks, that itself could be discriminatory, and you may get some discrimination claims arising. The other issue then crossed up, and this was coming up again and again and again from employers, um, 
is saying the EU SAS scheme is mandatory. You have to register on it uh, in order to be working lawfully. Um, and if you don't, if the European Union hasn't done it, then technically you're working here unlawfully. So you've got somebody who's been here, could be here for 15, 15, 10, 15 years, but they're not, they're not registered. They're now working lawfully. And I take you back to my point at the start of speaking, saying that if you uh, employ somebody lawfully, it's £20,000 fine. If you knowingly employ them, it's unlimited fine and directs to go to prison. So you're just overhearing the canteen or some uh, European mentions in passing, oh, I must get around to registering on the scheme. Alarm bells start ringing. So a lot, a lot of employees will start looking at the guidance and they're saying, does that mean we need to sort of sack the employee immediately? Otherwise, we're risking that. So we employ them lawfully, knowingly, with, with the implication of that. The guidance healthily has come out now and said, um, for yet another interim period, this is only until the 31st of December this year, and goodness knows what position will be after that. But if you find out on an audit or inspection, it comes to life, you've got a European national who's working for you, who hasn't registered under the scheme, and what you need to do is tell them they must register late under the scheme and give you um, a demonstrate they've done this within 28 days. And that'd be either a certificate of application or even just an email acknowledgement from the Home Office saying, thank you for your late acknowledgement. You then do a check through the employer checking service, which is another online check, and Home Office can then confirm to you whether or not you can or cannot continue to employ this individual. So there's been a lot of unease and a lot of uncertainty over the first six months of the year for a lot of employers. We have now got the certainty, but distilling it down, it is for European nationals going forward. New hires, it's an online check, and you you, you save the you, know, you print off the the the, the, uh, the check or save it to PDF or JPEG. And with regard to existing employees who are working to us, uh, for us before the 30th of June, it comes to that they haven't registered in the scheme. Then we've still got a, a great period in which we can get them to remedy the situation without putting ourselves at the risk of civil final penalty. Fantastic. I think it's a great example as well of where payroll really does blur with HR in some of these responsibilities. You know, if you get wind of someone, as you say, that that isn't potentially registered at the minute, you've got till the 31st December, act on it now, speak to your HR counterparts if it's not your responsibility, but you hear about it. I think this is where that relationship can really prosper and, and it is continuing to blow and, and get closer and closer together so brilliant uh, summary there john thank you ever so much well we're going to open up uh next uh, subject which for me is a subject close to my heart recruiting and retaining payroll talent now interestingly there's a question that comes up quite a lot which is are more people leaving the industry and i could talk about this subject for hours and i'm aware we're we're short on time if we need to do that so i'd rather actually open this to the panel before i jump in and just ask what the panel think about whether or not people are indeed leaving the industry um or not uh, just a quick run through i'm going to start with yourself samantha do you think people are leaving the industry well, I, I can only speak anecdotally from from my experience and my you know discussions that I've had with friends and former colleagues and colleagues um, about whether or not people are leaving. I would say yes, they are. But of course, I'm mindful that we've had a response saying no. Actually, this is a primary time. But yes, certainly, I would say that for for individuals who've worked for a very long time in the profession this might have proven to be the straw that broke the donkey's back you know we've had real-time information come in to support the payment of universal credits uh, but universal credits took a lot longer coming in then of course we had automatic enrollment yes we had a lot longer to get used to the idea but nevertheless that put a big burden on a payroll professional that they'd never had to deal uh, in such a way with pensions before and then of course you know with no notice whatsoever and no one can blame government for this with no notice whatsoever we go into a pandemic 
pandemic. Um, and as I think someone's commented already, you know, this has really caught uh, a lot of us by surprise. Uh, you know, the payroll processes, those contingency plans that never allowed for a pandemic, although many did, but not all. And that transition from working in the office in teams uh, where you're talking to each other constantly to uh, working from home when you're in isolation. And I remember last year, mid last year, we shared the results of a, a research that had been done about that asked where people were, were working from home. And there were quite a quite a significant percentage were working in their on their landing. Uh, you know, the kitchen was also a, a popular place and the bedroom. Our mental health is a very big issue at the moment. And one of the, the things that links to that is a good night's sleep. Uh, so working from your bedroom and trying to have a good night's sleep from your bedroom brings about all sorts of challenges. So, yes, I would say that there's a number of individuals who are choosing to leave the industry many who've been in the industry for many many years and that's that's a huge shame because that's a lot of real talent that we, 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 sure. uh, we're having but also younger people whose parents have been seeing the pressure they've been under working from home and then they say come on you don't need this pressure you, you know you need to leave and they're, they're younger workers and they've chosen you know to listen to their parents as as quite often younger people do it'd be good that's all right how about yourself Lou? how have you seen the industry do you think people are leaving i'll give i'll give you my view from a recruitment standpoint afterwards from my point of view i haven't experienced it in northern ireland we're always looking for payroll people but it's not that i can see people leaving the industry but if i was referred to refer back to the social media and the groups that i belong in i can see people actually physically thrown in the towel because they have had enough because it has been relentless really in the last year and a half i think as sam has pointed out i think that's made worse by the fact that you are trapped at home so to speak i mean i've enjoyed it there's i mean i was always against working from home but now i'm i mean today i'm back in my ey office um, for the first day and I have to say um, having to be up and on the road to do that drive back into Belfast a mere 12 miles was a killer but you know for me looking at social media very much there are people have had enough I suppose my concern as a payroll professional is the people coming into the industry do they know what do they know how to run a payroll? Do they know all the the rules and regulations? Do they have a qualification? I do really think that's very important. And are we getting the quality of people um, and the standard of payroll that we need to be delivered? That would be my bigger concern, to be honest. Sure. Certainly from a recruitment perspective, I think there's everything you've both said is absolutely right. There's definitely a shortage of top payroll talent out there at the minute. Those that really know the nuts and bolts of payroll. It's actually never been, in my experience, nearly 20 years now in, in, in payroll recruitment, a busier time for people looking for positions and clients looking to hire. And that, that's a, as, a, as a result of many things that have all kind of come together in the perfect wave. Uh, one of those is working from home. Those that have liked that um, situation and don't want to return to the office and where employers have said you have to return to the office, they've decided then to jump ship and go to employers that can accommodate the new way of working. And like the domino effect, when one goes, you need to replace and they all start moving in things. So that's been one cycle. Secondly, there's a huge drive across HR and payroll for digital transformation. Um, across all facets of business, organisational improvement, the pandemic has highlighted a number of potential weaknesses or gaps in, in models, and they're now trying to plug those with new engagement offerings and other bits and pieces that we've talked about previously on PPT. 
But that's also resulted in more recruitment, more people moving, more people changing, more investment. Interestingly, in terms of people leaving, I do think we have lost some experienced talent. That's that's for sure. But actually, one thing furlough has done, what we've seen, is introduced, because people have had to find talent quickly to help with furlough, it's pulled a lot of junior people into the industry that may not have considered it before, starting with furlough calculations only, spreadsheet-based, who have now stayed in payroll. They've actually enjoyed that pressure and who never thought about payroll as a career before and now remaining in that industry. And they were only brought into it due to furlough to handle workloads. So I think that's been a really interesting shift because historically, there's been a real... It's been really difficult to encourage the new generation to come into the industry. And I think that's been a really positive impact of, uh, of COVID is bringing people into the industry to help with the furlough calculations. I think the one thing that I would comment on that I've seen as being the biggest shift recently, and I'm doing some work with the CIPP on this as well, so Lou may, may be familiar, and we're going to release this shortly, is there are now more pathways in payroll than there have ever been before. When I started in this industry 18 years ago, it was very standard. You started in payroll administrator, you worked through to payroll manager, and you naturally hit a bit of a ceiling, or you went to a software provider and you kind of took that angle. We've identified so far over 62 different payroll titles, which are all very different in terms of responsibility that you know go from payroll web development through to payroll sales, through to payroll analytics, through to payroll and reward. Global payroll now is much more prevalent than it ever used to be as we work into a more global payroll world. So I think sometimes there's a perception that we're losing people from the industry. But actually, a lot of those people have taken different directions within the industry and the titles change. They may still have responsibility for payroll, but the title might be reward. They may still have responsibility for payroll, but the title might be something different. And that's been a massive, massive shift that we've seen as well. But for sure, Samantha, absolutely right. A lot of people have found it very stressful and they've either changed and pivoted their careers into those new directions. Maybe they've moved into sales, training has been another area, tutoring. Um, it could be into implementation or project management, but they're just a little bit tired of the day to day after what they've been put through over the last months uh, and, and all the years with, with, with what's happened. Um, for me, as a recruiter, it's never been a more exciting, busy time for, for, for payroll. I'm hugely optimistic about the future. Um, I think uh, employers should be doing everything they can to retain top payroll talent, because as you rightly pointed out, Lou and Sam, it's very hard to replace. Good talent is difficult to find, and employers, I think now, hopefully, if they're not, they should start to recognise the role that payroll people play in their businesses, reward them appropriately, which may be in equal terms with HR and finance counterparts to make sure that they are happy, provide engagement initiatives that allow them to stay happy and uh, well in, in, in their minds as well, which may involve working from home more, something that historically everyone said payroll couldn't do. And I think that's the biggest shift we need to see now. Employers need to really move with the industry to understand they need to keep that talent because it's very expensive to replace. And I know because that's what we do. And it's very, very difficult to find good, good people. So I think hopefully there's been a real raising of the profile, raising of the industry and raising of understanding that the role is really, really very, very challenging. These uh, these webinars don't prove that enough because it bamboozles me every time. Then uh, I'm sure those working industry will know that anyway. Um, and interestingly, of course, we've got the apprenticeships, which I know I've got a bullet point here, where she's really encouraging not just youngsters, but uh, individuals that hadn't considered payroll as an industry choice before. It's much, much more accessible now than it used to be. Um, hopefully that will plug some of the gaps uh, for those that are leaving at the top end. Um, but for me, it's incredibly exciting time. 
from yourself, Simon, you work for a software provider, a payroll services provider. You've, you're a, an example, or you work for an example company that does offer different career trajectories, different titles, different roles that you can be involved in. What's your view on the, on the market at the minute in terms of recruiting and retaining top talent? Well, I think um, I'm with you, Nick, and I think there's great opportunity ahead. And we've had a period of opportunity to change direction a little bit for many payroll professionals. Now, there is a question of whether that suits some personality at times, because as a professional, we've been brought more to the front than we had before. I mean, to think, would we have been running payroll question time in 2019? I don't know. This was initiated because of the pandemic, really, and the need. So we've kind of established this. So I think we're very much more collaborative, open. Social media is helping there. But I have seen that some people have suffered. And uh, you can see that in some of the web chats. Maybe that's because uh, there's not been a realisation in some of their businesses of the need or they've been that desperate. But some have probably seen the workforce around them all staying at home, getting 8% of their pay, and they're working 20-hour days to make sure that those people get paid, yet they've not got any more pay themselves. And and some of them are probably even paying people more than they earn uh, on, on that basis. But I think there's great opportunity for the future. Uh, you'll know I believe in qualification. So um, I have the Master of Science. You've got Lou there that's got a chartered status. I'm a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Parallel Professions. I think we are a professional organisation and be proud of our professionalism and our place. But I think there's also been a mention earlier that actually payroll is a little bit undervalued. So if you said how much per head for payroll, how much per head for tax, uh, etc., there'd be quite a difference. And even how much per head for HR. And it's an element of actually payroll is no longer putting wages in brown envelopes and calculating tax and NI. It's much more complicated than that. We could say that's because systems do it all for you now. So it's just as uh, some uh, Lord said some years ago, press of a button. It's much more than that. You've got to have the brain to press the button uh, because a lot of it is not the software. It's all the process and how business works. So I think it's a great opportunity for payroll to become important and strategic in business today. Fantastic. I mean, two things I would just add to those points. My perspective, Simon, is one, if you're a payroll manager, please, please try and take a moment. And Samantha's mentioned it's so important to take a moment out and just strategize, take a breath and look at your department. Where can you improve? Do you need headcount? Do you need to do something different? Because so often we're head down so much that we don't lift our heads to really see what's ahead of us. I'm a big believer in recovery for top performance. And if you want to perform optimally as a payroll manager or any payroll professional, or in any, actually in any walk of life, you need times to recover. You know, whether you're a Formula One racing car, you go into a pit stop to recover, and it's the pit stops that really make you win a race, right? And you'll heard of that on, on other podcasts that talk about these things. But ultimately, you need time to recover. And when you're recovering, that's also a time you can lift your head and think about your department strategically to know where you want to take it, what you need. Do you need headcount? Do you not? And really think about it and give yourself time to breathe. Secondly, I would say if you are feeling undervalued without encouraging an exodus of people running to their HR departments to say, I need a pay rise, have the conversations now rather than after you've decided to go and find something else. Because I'm a big believer, and this is going against what I do as a recruitment firm, really, but I'm a big believer in get valued while you're there, not because you're forcing someone's hand. And I think now's a really good opportunity to prove what you've delivered 
over this pandemic. You proved your value nationwide, globally. Go and have those conversations. And I think you'll, you'll, you may well be surprised because actually the reputation of payroll has raised not just within the payroll community. It has really increased in the HR community and the finance communities as well. So I think you'll find those responses and the, um, the reactions you get to those questions will hopefully be much more positive now than they may have been in 2018, 2019. Just about out of time. So can I give or take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to our panel for their wisdom today, as always. And of course, to all of you, our wonderful audience, uh, for joining us with your questions and for listening to this discussion. I look forward to seeing you all again really soon in September at the end of a couple of weeks of celebrations. <laughs> See you all soon. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.